You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are so, so thankful for your blessed privilege to be gathered together another year down, another year closer to your coming. And yet, Father, we do just want to be humble before you that we, this year, like every other year, are in desperate need of you. Lord, this year, we will see more hardships, more trials, more difficulties, more loss, more pain, more suffering, and yet we will have an opportunity to experience you more, Lord. There, there will be another day today that we can experience you, that we can serve others, that we can love others, that we can share with others. And so God, may we see all of this in your light and would you, Holy Spirit, be with us now. Would you reveal yourself, the Son, through your word and would we come to know you more deeply and intimately. Jesus, we love you and it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. You all may be seated, and it's great to see all of you here. It looks like we have a pretty good crowd tonight, so congrats, New Year's. New you, you ready, right? But uh, yeah, my name is Aaron Bickett, and I am one of two ministry residents here at Christ Church. And yeah, I mean like 2022, 
I mean, that's crazy. I mean, really, like 2022, that's the kind of number that you get on kind of like a sci-fi movie trailer, right? I mean, I bet in the 80s or the 90s, they, they were saying that we would see some really, really crazy stuff this year. I mean, I'd think that we'd have like sentient robots or something, right? At least maybe we'd be able to control the weather, but it just seems like we got a super bug and a bunch of Walmarts that seem to just run out constantly of pasta noodles. So we'll see. We'll see what this year has in store. But even with all of those trying times, there is really not a group of people on this earth that I would personally rather spend than with you all here. And of course, those of you on Zoom as well. Thank you so much for joining us. But again, like if I haven't met you either, um, please, if you would, I and the elders would love to meet you. So just come down to the front, if you would, and introduce yourself. Uh, we would love to hear your story and maybe even take you out to coffee. So come on down to the front after the service and let's chat. Now, I'm actually preaching here this week to fill in for the famed Jordan Rivera, who just recently welcomed their daughter into the world. So we are so stoked for them and just so thankful um, that everything went well. So uh, I was able to step in, though. And because I filled in, I was kind of caught between preaching series a bit. Uh, as Kyle mentioned last week, it was kind of a preaching roulette sort of Sunday. And so coming up with something to preach on, honestly, for me, was a little bit less than easy. Because as I thought, and as I prayed, and as I wrestled through kind of what to preach on, I noticed this almost unspoken pressure to come up with something grand, or unique, or motivational. And as I was really thinking about this, I was starting to think, man, like we in the West really have this as a challenge. And especially during New Year's, we seem to have this cultural need to kind of muster up some kind of new zeal or new passion or motivation on January 1st and the week thereafter to really just try and get us through the rest of the year. I mean, like fitness goals, home improvement lists, career ladders to climb, parenting milestones. I mean, all of these are really not bad things, but ultimately, however, they will not stand the test of time to satisfy and fulfill us. Now, perhaps you are a little bit more sanctified than that and you don't deal with kind of wrestling with your weight or even finding joy in your job. Maybe you aren't concerned with those kind of things, but even as a Christian, we still have to ask and wonder, how can I grow faster as a Christian this year? How can I crush this sin or that fear or be a better gospel sharer? Feelings of dissatisfaction spiritually can drive these kind of pressures for new passion and better motivations. But like Kyle mentioned last week, Though all of these things are fine and good, they are still not what we ultimately need. I mean, it's all even kind of harder now with COVID, right? I mean, questions of like, will this year be worse? Will the economy crash? I mean, is the sky gonna fall down or will the, just the country tear itself in half? I mean, these are really tough stuff. And maybe in fact, honestly, we might hope that this year won't be different because it might just get worse. So kind of as I sat in my shed in the backyard where I normally do my sermon prep, kind of mulling all of this stuff over till I was just an anxious mess, I uh, decided to call up Nathan and kind of just get his opinion on a text. I just couldn't, couldn't think of anything. And so just like off the cuff, out of the blue, Nathan was like, why don't you just preach on a psalm or something? Or you know what, better yet, how about Philemon? I was like, wait, what? I don't really remember Philemon having like that groundbreaking award-winning sermon that like I would preach and then just really make it in the preaching game. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, like 
as I reread that short little, this short little Pauline epistle, I was really just gripped with the gospel once again. And I'm so thankful for it. And really a, a simple realization struck me. What I really think that I need and what I think that we need as a church really is not just some groundbreaking new sermon or some kind of bigger, better master plan, but the quiet reminder of the Father's love, the Son's work, all revealed to us by his word, applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Day in, day out, I mean week in and week out, this is what we need. I mean, because if Christ tarries, honestly, we all still have work tomorrow anyway. So let's get into Philemon and see just what the Lord has to offer. Now, because we'll be covering the entire book in one fell swoop, we won't major on kind of all of the details that Philemon has to offer us by way of like application in, in a lot of the sense, but it's all there and it's super well worth the study. So I would encourage you to really dig in this week as you study Philemon on your own. But I mean like themes of interpersonal forgiveness, horizontal reconciliation, uh, biblical theology on Christian ethics, and so much more are really jam-packed in this little letter. But as an entire work, I think there's this more universal, abiding reality woven through this letter that I really hope that we catch, which if we do, will drive us to respond like Christ in these areas, like horizontal forgiveness and reconciliation. So to start with a little bit of background here, this is actually Paul's shortest letter of all time. It's also the shortest book in the Bible by the third. It was most likely written while Paul was under house arrest in Rome or possibly while he was imprisoned in Ephesus. Um, it's, likely it's, it's directly written to Philemon, obviously, who was a wealthy believer in Colossae, which is now Western modern day Turkey. Uh, but it's also addressed to Apthia, who is most likely Philemon's wife, as well as to Archippus. Now, some scholars say that Archippus is uh, just Philemon's son, while others think he's the missionary elder there at the church uh, in Colossae because of uh, Colossians 4.17. Either way, though, nobody really knows. We also see that this letter is written to the church there. Now, the whole subject of this letter is mainly Paul's pleading on behalf of this slave of Philemon's, Onesimus, who had apparently run off and had possibly stolen from Philemon as well. Uh, Onesimus' name in the Greek actually means useful or profitable. It's a common name for slaves, and it could have come from either Onesimus' parents or, or even just Philemon himself could have named him that. Now, there are entire teaching series on the subject of slavery, but, but I will just mention it. Much of the New Testament instances of slavery were of a very different type of indentured servitude than the kind of chattel slavery made infamous in the West some 160 years ago. Now granted, that kind of slavery did take place in the ancient Near East and is condemned by scripture, by the way, but it is not likely that that is the situation given here because of the historical context. Most likely though, like many bond servants of his day, Onesimus was either indebted to Philemon for a given amount of time or money to pay back, or he was a slave won through war. Uh, the other option as well is that Philemon had bought Onesimus' debt uh, from somebody else, thereby kind of paying for Onesimus' years of service. It's kind of like the old American adage of when you go to the diner, you forget your wallet, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I have to pay for this. And then they 
make you clean the dishes and the grease trap, right? Um, even better yet, it's kind of like if you went to the Dodge dealership and you're like, man, I really want that new truck, so you buy it, you live there, sleep there, work there, and then eventually, someday, you will have paid off that sweet Ram 2500. But this text right here kind of has a closer view of that in mind than kind of the slavery that much of us are familiar with. So with all that said, it is not to say that God's good design for human flourishing involved indentured servitude. In fact, many times, some of the abuses seen in Western slavery often took place still then in, at the, to the hands of uh, masters and their own servants, of which the scriptures also condemn. Even Paul, in some of his letters, commands against the ill treat, treatment of servants and slaves from their masters, even making provision that bondservants should seek readily their freedom by legal means. But because we're kind of trying to see the bigger picture in all of this, we'll get back on track. And so setting the fun facts aside and some of the background, we'll break this text down into three parts. So the first one will be the praise of the master. The second part will be the plea for the prodigal. And then the third one will be the promise of the advocate. We'll be taking this text a little bit more thematically, not diving into every single rabbit hole, but the main themes will hopefully be fairly evident as we go along. So to start, our first point then, the praise of the master. And we'll focus on verses one through seven, uh, where we see at least a couple of things right off the bat. And, and first, can I just say, man, if I had the Apostle Paul himself write a letter to me like this, I would definitely know that I'm getting to heaven. <laughs> I mean, by the sounds of it, I mean, like, I might even get a pretty decent seat at the marriage feast, like, kind of close to Jesus, honestly. Like, if Apostle Paul was talking to me about this like that, that, that'd be amazing. But, I mean, in all seriousness, Paul's humility and praise of Philemon is, is somewhat unique here, even given the context of why Paul is writing the letter. It's almost as if Paul seems, like, really infatuated and, like, thinks incredibly highly of Philemon. Or maybe he's just, like, pandering to him. I don't know. I mean... Obviously, now, Paul never panders to anybody in the New Testament. That's not his thing, as we'll see later on. But it's an, it's an interesting point to, to, to reference. And so secondly, now, the letter doesn't portray Philemon kind of like this begrudging slave master that some have painted him as. Because if what Paul is saying is true, it actually seems like he's a faithful, loving, generous fellow believer in Christ, which for the purpose of the theme of this letter is, is going to be important for us to remember so then, I mean, like we can at least surmise in this first chunk that Philemon is a beloved fellow worker, verse one. He is generous by allowing people to meet in his home, verse two. Uh, Paul remembers Philemon because of his love and faith towards Christ and fellow believers, verse five. Uh, Paul desires that the fellowship that Philemon is participating in produces deeper knowledge of Christ, verse six there. And then in verse seven, Paul is greatly encouraged in the way that Philemon serves and builds up the local body. Paul seems confident here in the character and the substance of Philemon, and he is making it very clear that this isn't a question in his own mind. So this will then be vital for us to keep in mind as we kind of move along, because as we will see, God's word is so much more than just a nice letter to a nice guy. But that then brings us to our second point, which will focus on verses 8 through 17, the plea for the prodigal. Verse eight goes, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, 
Yet for love's sake, I appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I mean, this is incredible. I mean, Paul starts here in verses 8 through 9, building this kind of multi-layered case before making his intentions clear to Philemon. Notice, too, that a plea and appeal like this is only ever required where there is a plight. And the plight in this narrative, and ultimately any story in life, as we'll see, is because of sin. So he starts, then, with a strong statement in verse 8 saying, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. I mean, not much left there for discussion. But then in verse 9 he says, yet for love's sake I appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. So there's something interesting here. Now, not only does Paul say that he has the authority to command Philemon to do what he's about to ask, but he says that for love's sake he's going to request him to do it instead. And this is quite the tension that Paul is holding here, and I think it brings some added weight to what he's about to ask for. Not only that, but then Paul takes it a step further and goes on to title himself, saying, I, Paul, an old man, and a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Now this is unique, not only for the emotions being shared here before the request, but because this is now the second time that Paul addresses himself as a prisoner and only a prisoner. And we have to catch this, because in this letter, It is one of the only times in all of his letters that Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus himself, does not introduce himself as an apostle. I mean, if you'll remember any of his other epistle intros, for instance, Romans, it reads, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. In Ephesians, it reads, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Uh, First and second Timothy, as well as Titus, it reads, Paul, an apostle of Christ. And most of his other letters start with this kind of title. It's kind of like how we know it's the Apostle Paul and just not somebody else. He, he really makes sure you know, like, I'm an apostle. So why is he leaving this out in Philemon? I mean, this is kind of a big deal. And so what it means, though, is that Paul is going way out of his way to make this gentle, passionate plea from a posture of really intentional and almost overkill humility but what for? Well, verse 10 reads, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I mean, how on earth? Like, all right, hold on. Imagine this, all right? Here's Philemon sitting in Colossae getting a letter from the Apostle Paul himself, who is likely responsible, by the way, for the church meeting in his house right now, who's imprisoned in Rome, a thousand miles away in the West, and somehow he gets this name drop of this rogue servant who has now abandoned his duty and possibly stolen from him as well. And then not only that, but also this Onesimus, who's a slave and run off, ran into none other than the Apostle Paul and was converted. I mean, like, as the quote from Nathan Sherman goes, this is bananas. (laughs) The providence of God here is so profound. And what's crazy is that this isn't even the craziest part of the letter. I mean, moving along, verse 12, Paul drops the bomb that he's sending Onesimus back to Philemon. I mean, that's awkward. And not just back, but now under the affections of Paul. He's sending his very heart. 
there's real love here. I mean, my child, my very heart, he's using these words. It's key for us to connect this loving plea for the prodigal with our earlier point of praising the master because now that we have the context here, we come to understand that Paul was not just merely stroking Philemon's ego, kind of like a kid buttering his mom up before he's like, oh, hey, I broke your vase. No, instead, we see that Paul's passionate love and posture of humility is for the sake of the prodigal that he's pleading for. I mean, Onesimus is now a child of the living God. And Paul, being instrumental in Onesimus' conversion, would of course love and plead for Onesimus. He is God's very own now. He's welcomed into the fold. I mean, this also makes sense and more sense of verse 11's usefulness statement. He says, he was formerly useless to you, but now he is useful to you and indeed to me. Verse 11, or uh, 13 and 14 say, I would have been glad to keep him here with me in order that he might serve you, serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be done under compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul, in essence, here is saying, like, since I know your character and with you fully aware of everything that's happened, I could have just assumed you allowing me to keep him here on your behalf, but instead of putting words into your mouth, I wanted to bless you with a decision myself. I mean, Paul here is reiterating this firstly to avoid seemingly shaming or pigeonholing Philemon. Now, Paul isn't saying, hey, just set Onesimus free and send him back here because, I mean, that would defeat the purpose of him sending Onesimus there in the first place. No, the thrust that Paul is getting at here in verse 14 is for the full measure of reconciliation to take place. He does not just simply want legal consequences removed from Onesimus or just getting him off the hook, nor does he just want Philemon to not have to deal with the renegade who ran off. No, instead, Paul is actively guarding Philemon's choice in the matter because reconciliation always requires relationship. Grace is always corrupted if ever given under compulsion. And so this is why then Paul has been so careful up until this point to make his appeal one of willing persuasion because it's the very gospel that he's bringing to bear in this situation. I mean, by by pleading and requesting rather than demanding and commanding, Paul is purposefully banking on the character of Christ in Philemon to ground his plea upon so that the true gospel can take root in Philemon's heart and so that it can blossom for others to see as well. This is further proven when Paul asked Philemon not to just accept Onesimus back in the same manner that he left. Instead, Paul says that in verse 15, for this is perhaps why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and now in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. I mean, what an ask. Gosh, Paul quickly first anchors all of this to the providence and sovereignty of God and salvation. I mean, like Joseph in Genesis 50, what what others meant for evil, God meant for good. But then we see that Paul doesn't just want the master to take back the slave as a mere servant. 
Nor does he even just stop at asking him to accept him just as a brother either. No, Paul seals the request by asking that Philemon receive Onesimus with the very same love that Philemon would have for Paul himself. I mean, Paul is now ramping up this letter and he begins to really take on not just that of a, the role of a, a mere acquaintance, but that of an advocate. So in short, so far, I mean, Paul has shown us the character of who he is pleading to, and now he has shown us the love that he has for who he is pleading for, the praise of the master and the pleading of the prodigal, which brings us then to our third point, verses 18 through 21, the promise of the advocate. So we have this good and gracious master We have a convinced and converted prodigal and now an advocate on behalf of them both, pleading for reconciliation and making an appeal for redemption. But now here's the dilemma. Philemon, the master, on hearing this news, on hearing Paul's request and what he's asking, he has a choice to make. On the one hand, Philemon could, you know, as the master, being wronged from Onesimus and and being rightly, deservingly, could completely demand that his servant be returned to him. And and by Roman law, by the way, he could choose to get angry and vengeful and demanding for justice to be done. I mean, he could even charge Onesimus with reparations for abandoning his service and stealing from him, possibly even just sending him to prison. Or, on the other hand, he could just forgive him. Why not? Just, Just let him go off the hook, no big deal. Forget about it, welcome him as a brother, listen to, listen to Paul, and, and just rejoice with him, right? But how? How could Philemon just let go of all of that time, all of that money, the pain, the betrayal? I mean, how, how is he going to deal with this? Paul isn't commanding, after all, it's, it's only a request. Well, Paul, as the advocate, states in verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hands. I will repay it. I mean, here Paul doesn't just leave the two with the mere possibility of reconciliation. No, instead, like his savior, he makes it a promise by his own sacrifice. I mean, in in essence, He is taking on the debt and the debtor unto himself for the sake of both the master and the prodigal. What I love about this too is that Paul could have just demanded Philemon to forgive Onesimus on the basis of his own forgiveness in Christ. But he doesn't just leave it at a cold theological command. He goes even further by offering himself up in a sense like the savior they had all come to know in order that reconciliation wasn't just done begrudgingly, but that it would be a true gift of grace. I mean, and speaking of Paul, like this is a man clearly gripped by the gospel, and he is giving it away freely. I mean, Paul is really almost embodying the words of Jesus in John 5, like that the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Now Paul, like united to this Jesus, is unable to do anything of his own accord because he has now seen what the Son has done at Calvary. Does this sound like your own life in the midst of broken relationships? (laughs) 
I mean, I know that this isn't always my response when I've been, you know, stuck in broken relationships or mediating or mending uh, hurt feelings. Maybe just some food for thought this week. But as we continue, uh, the second half of 19, Paul, in his kind of classic rhetorical manner, almost jokingly and in good fun, adds, to say nothing of your owing me even of your own self, basically saying, like, forgiveness, miss, be reconciled to him, and kind of charge it all to my account, because it's not like you owe me your own soul or anything, seeing as how I brought you to Christ. And I mean, even in verse 20, he plays on the words of verse 11, telling Philemon that since Onesimus was beneficial to me, now I want some benefit from you. He even adds later, the heart of the saints have been refreshed by you. Now refresh my heart in this. These particular verses are actually used to give evidence to the closeness of Paul and Philemon. I mean, this is not Paul threatening here. There's deep joy, I think, in Paul saying this and sharing these things. And these verses would have been taken a lot more playfully. So there then is this love between the master and the advocate. And now we see there's also this love with the prodigal as well. I mean, as the psalmist says in Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Paul begins to wrap up the letter kind of just as he started by resting his confidence on who he knows Philemon to be. As verse 21 reads, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. There is a a hopefulness at the close of this letter. I mean, anticipation even. Many even believe that this is also a hint of the full freeing of Onesimus as a slave. Now, whether or not this actually takes place, many of us know that if the Son sets you free, you are truly free indeed, no matter what your circumstances are. But, I mean, what a wonderful physical picture of Onesimus' freedom that would be to proclaim the spiritual reality that really has taken place in his life. Uh, even much like we remember here with the, with the Lord's table, week after week, and with baptism during our members' meetings. So, all in all, kind of if we look at this from a large, backed-up telescope lens, we see Paul here, the advocate, with full authority, humbling himself before the master Philemon. I mean, we hear this advocate then speaking highly of and praising the master, giving honor to his character and his name, before he then pleads for a sinner in whom he's won the gospel for, won for the gospel. And not just any sinner, but apparently the master's very own servant, a runaway thief. Paul is now then endeared to this prodigal by way of salvation. He then sends him back that the master's mercy and grace would not be done under compulsion, but would then be displayed for the world and the church to see. He asks that the master would accept the rogue servant, not just as a servant or even just as a brother, but that he would accept him just as he would accept the advocate himself. Then Paul goes so far as to write a blank check to the master, saying, everything that he owes you, charge it to me, signing it off with his very own hand. And then to finish it all up, Paul is then confident, even expectant, of the master's response. I mean, what a letter. It's little, but man, what a letter. To have such an incredible like microcosm of reconciled relationships in one tiny little epistle is, is just amazing. But do you know what? 
the Spirit of God did not just waste ink to tell us about Paul's ministry or to tell us a, a fair treatise on how to, how to deal with workers or, or even just how to better forgive those around us. I mean, if you didn't catch it, he's showing us the very story of redemption here. There's this, this old quote that I found um, pretty much done with the sermon, kind of floating around that's attributed to Martin Luther, actually. And he says, as Christ does for us with God the Father, so does Paul with Philemon for Onesimus. We are all God's Onesimi, or, or literally usefuls. And man, I love that. Because doesn't this sound so much like our own good and gracious master of all who is deserving of praise and humble deferral like just by his very nature? And isn't this so much like our own savior who took a gentle and lowly place before the father though he was equal with God? And doesn't this sound so much like us, right? On the run and having stolen from the one we owe everything to. I mean, isn't this such a reminder of our own advocate who pleads on our behalf, who though not obliged to do us thieves and runaways any good, has brought us to life and offers them to pay our every debt in full with his very own account? I mean, he's pleading not just to pardon us as servants, but but full acceptance as sons. I mean, to be received and loved just as the son is received and loved. And I mean, just doesn't this sound so much like our Jesus who sends us back in reconciliation to our Father who we've wronged, not just with nice words, but a pardon of promise from his word written by his own hand. And not just any father, but to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. What a marvelous God that we serve. Yes, like what sinners we are, but what an advocate that we have. At the end of Colossians, actually, not not Philemon, but Colossians, we are told that Paul had sent Tychicus to Colossae with the letter to the Colossians, probably one of the most profound epistles on the subjects of Christ's identity and our union with Jesus. But sent along with Tychicus to Colossae, is none other than Onesimus himself, who has since been united to Christ, now faithful and beloved, heading back to the master he once wronged. Fascinatingly enough, though, we don't actually hear how Philemon responds to Onesimus' return. And man, I, I think that is absolutely on purpose. Because here's a question with all of the evidences given about Philemon's character and the very confidence and assurance that Paul has, how do you think Philemon responded? What do you think happened to Onesimus when he returned? On a more personal note, through this life as we head back to the Father, bought and sent by the Son, our very advocate, what do you think will happen to us? How do you think our master will receive us? Does your life reflect a confident, abiding assurance in your your own master's character? Does it display a trust in your own advocate's pleading and promises? Christian, if, 
you fear your rejection from your master, remember that Jesus is not just your acquaintance. He is your advocate. Your pardon has been paid for. Are you coming back fearfully, slowly, reluctantly? His word is clear. God's love is abounding. He is slow to anger. It's all there. Are you far off needing to come back to the Father in the first place? His providence has brought you here. Turn and come back to him. It's really when we truly grasp these things that we will begin to respond like Paul, really like Christ, in forgiving others and giving the gospel away freely to those who have wronged us, to those who have stolen from us. When we see him laying down his life for us, we will then gladly lay our lives down for others. For those of you who are not a Christian here tonight, not yet anyway, in the spiritual sense, you are still a thief and on the run. Even if you're here in church right now. Because if you do not know Christ, then you have a master that you are still indebted to. You see, in Mark 12, 17, Jesus was asked by a crowd of people about paying taxes, kind of almost like debt. Should we pay taxes, they asked. Then Jesus replied to them, asking them in return, whose inscription is on the money? They answered, Caesar's. But he replied to them by saying, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Do you know whose image is stamped on you by nature? Do you know where you've come from and who you belong to? As humans being on this earth, we all owe God our full allegiance and lives because we bear his image and we belong to him. We owe him everything. I mean, we are indebted to him eternally. All of our love, all of our affection, all our time and our talents, all of our worship, all of our praise. Yet we have abandoned him. We have sinned against him and we have robbed him of what is his, namely ourselves and our worship. And in doing so, we have all come under his wrath. This is bad news, not only because we cannot pay him back, but the punishment is death and permanent eternal judgment and separation from him. But praise be to God because of our advocate, Jesus Christ, on the cross, not only made it possible for the removal of our debt, he paid it in full with his own sacrifice. I mean, this is why he lived. This is why he died, and this is why he rose again. This Bible then, cover to cover, this book of Philemon, is then the letter sent to prove that you are forgiven, and that you can turn back not just to a forgiving master, but to a father 
who loves you no matter how far away you are. Let us pray that that God would, would truly work this out in our hearts and our minds. Let's go before him. Father, your word is is so good. You you are so good to us. God, I pray that you you would just reveal yourself more and more fully. God, that, that we truly are as sinful people in rebellion and running from you and yet your loving hand and your providence has brought us here and brought us near. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work your miraculous, supernatural work in our souls for those of us who are Christians to more and more experience this reality that we would then go and tell others of your purchase of them. And for those of us who who are not yet believers in this room, God, I pray that this evening you would open their eyes to see that all it takes is a turning to you, not a running, not a working, but a turning to you, God. I pray that you would work this out this evening. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the little book of Philemon. I thank you for this church. And Jesus, it is all in your great name that we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.